Hey, so how's it going? Um, well, we survived Christmas. We did. And now we're in that weird week between Christmas and New Year's where time doesn't matter. Everything is dust. Right. It's, <laughs> it's the whose line is it anyway of the timeline. Mm-hmm. This, yeah. I don't know what's happening. Like, <laughs> I, I work today, but like no one's actually working. So I did, I mean, I did do some work, but it's like, okay, I'm bored. I've yes. been listening to a book all day on, on audiobook and so oh, good. I'm, just, I'm just kind of done. <laughs> I'm ready for 2022 for sure. I, yeah, you've got big things coming in 2022. I do. I have uh, really big things coming in 2022. I've got just the same. I'm hoping to snowball. So we'll see how big the snowball gets. Like yeah. I got good momentum at the end of this year with my you business did. and you I did. want to keep that rolling. You did. It's so funny. Every time you like get down on yourself about the business I'm like oh here we go he's about to get a boom I know I always know so (laughs) yes you're you're right also when I get down on myself it's usually because I've been working way harder than in the weeks leading up to that and Mm -hmm. so like the fruits of my labor and I forget that that's a thing Mm -hmm. because I get so one of the perils of working from home when you're as extroverted as I am is that you see nobody else. And then when you uh-huh. struggle with depression, like I do, then you're stuck with your thoughts all day by yourself. Uh-huh. Um, and like, I know, I know that you guys are always in my pocket, but that doesn't always mean you're readily available for when I'm spiraling. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I know, <laughs> I know, like, I know you're suffering the same. I issues. also work from home. <laughs> Um, but I don't see you as a huge extrovert. Not that that do what? Is it really? Yeah. Like I see you as more in the ambivert side. Like you have the times you need to go out, but that you also, and I probably need to see people like 90% of the time and know people 10% of the time. (laughs) And so that being said, like, especially after Christmas, I had three Christmases to go to because, you know, my family's kind of all over the place, um, relationship wise. And so I had three Christmases to go to. And I was just like all day yesterday, I was like, I need to not speak to anybody. I need to not look at anybody. When you were like talking about stuff to do for recording, I was like, we're going to have to do this tomorrow because I cannot do it today. Right. No. And I also need a break, but I kind of, I need a break where I have just adults to talk to because I've now been trapped in a house with a toddler for two full weeks. I feel that. And I've been there. As much as I love him, I also need to have a conversation that doesn't involve uh, Mickey Mouse or asking why over um, the most minute of things. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. However, I will say that um, my mom is coming in tomorrow to take yes. him out for the day. And when Yay. she asked him what he wanted to do, he told her, go to Disney World. So we've created a monster. You have in fact created a monster. <laughs> I was like, let's find something a little closer to home today. Yes, you have created a monster. Um, speaking of monsters, Aaron, I am also a monster. Okay. I have a confession. Tell me. Um, so today I wore a lime green shirt. Yes. I 
tower. Okay, I don't tower, but I am tall. I stick out in a crowd. You are tall, yes. Um, I have a very noticeable build. Yes. But somehow today I was pegged as a kidnapper. Uh-huh. Um, so I would just like to go on record to say I did not kidnap my own child. And while he was screaming, if somebody else had wanted to take him for like 20 minutes, I'm not saying forever, I would have been okay with that. You are not a bouncer, comma. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, like, you know, first, of all, why don't you tell people what happened? So I had to go to the store today, mostly just so I could leave my house. So I could not be cooped up in my house anymore. Um, and so I took my son with me to so that I could just exchange a game for store credit because I'd been gifted this game. I already had a, I already had it. So I had two, I was like, I just want a gift card. And then whenever he's not with me, I can go shopping because mm -hmm. he was very three years old today and shopping was not going to be successful. Yeah. Shopping with with teenagers is not fun. No. Shopping with teenagers coincidentally is also not fun, but right. I've heard that. <laughs> so, um, so we're in the customer service line and he just melts down because I said something really offensive and rude to him. I imagine. Poor I baby. said, you need to stand right here beside me. Oh my God, you monster. Well, that's what he thought. So he screamed as if I had set him on fire. Duh. So um, I get my exchange done. He's still screaming. Um, and I'm having to carry him out, which he hates but it's the only mode of transportation that is working at this time. And about 30 seconds before we made it to the door, a woman had reported to the guy who stands by the door to make sure you're not shoplifting, um, that she and her child had been separated. And so they pulled a code at them, which I'm grateful for. Like, I'm so glad there are those things in place, that there are systems in place to keep people safe. Sure. However, when they said that it was a little girl who was missing, I do feel a little bit of grace to my screaming little boy who did not match the description of this child could have been granted. Yes. So they accosted me at the door and said, sir, is this your child? And because I'm a smart ass, I almost said, is a kidnapper going to tell you the truth? Are they just like right there? And they're going to be like, oh, you caught me. Oh, right. Oh, my bad. I almost got away with it. If it weren't for you, pesky bouncer. At right. You meddling kids. <laughs> so um, I was like, yes. And he was like, well, can you prove it? And I was like, I mean, not with a paternity test. A, like, that's a weird thing to ask. <laughs> now, to like, be fair, he, I don't. No, he is the rent-a-cop from. He's not. Right. From Law and Order SVU manning <laughs> the door after uh, you know an especially heinous crime has been committed okay now i'm not granting him any grace but i will say just in public in general um my son is brown and i am not so i can imagine that that is a weird like th that in this circumstance where there is a child missing and i don't look anything like my kid because he's adopted <laughs> it's a little strange and so i was like i mean i've got pictures of us together but like dude do you hear him screaming i can let you deal with this or you can let me go put him in the car like right you're like i'm happy to peace out without this kid right now right? <laughs>
Um, I mean, so, I love him, and I'll come back and collect him later. But you right. can you can call him down first. That would be awesome, actually. right? Because um, I've done a lot of de-escalating since he's been off his routine. Because when yeah. school's closed, he's not good with it. That's what uh-huh. I understand. We all need routine. Listen, even my seventeen-year-old is not good when he's off his routine. So, um, so uh, the pictures were convincing enough, and he let me go. And right as I finished showing the pictures the mom found her daughter who had um basically crawled underneath one of the tv displays and so i was like i mean i think that would have been the first place i looked for my kid personally because i know he likes to hide in dark places yeah but i'm so glad they found her funny story from my own childhood um my aunt took me shopping one day and um i was in a mood and so i was like hiding from her in um like in the clothing racks and then I wanted this thing and she told me no and I was like throwing a fit and so she picks me up and she's like okay well we're leaving and I did not like that and so the whole way out of the store I was screaming you're not my mom mom. (laughs) (laughs) so you know how we were talking about this at Christmas you know how every person in the family has their like origin story like they're the story that when everyone tells a story about you it's the story they tell like that's mine uh-huh okay um, and then my cousins is the Tada story I don't know if I told you the Tada story I don't know the Tada story oh my god oh he's gonna be so glad I told this on here <laughs> he won't listen to this but so my cousin um when he was little he um had a thing for being naked as lots of kids do right And so he, I think it was my grandfather actually who taught him to jump out and say, ta-da. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where it came from, but anyway, so one night my aunt had her boyfriend over and her, her boyfriend at the time was like very shy, very reserved. And um, my cousin was there. Um, My grandparents were taking care of him and he was little and he was taking a bath and, um, when he got out of, the, out of the bath, you know, my grandmother told him, okay, now um, go in there and, you know, put on your, put on your clothes and, you know, don't, you know, don't stop and, and you, you better put on your clothes and you know the rules and we've talked about this and da, da, da. So she sends him out, right? Right. He goes into the little room and he puts on a, a like a big long t-shirt and he comes out and, um, my grandmother had gone back like into her bedroom and she comes out and, and my cousin is like standing next to the coffee. And you know how kids, when they have a secret, they like lean like this. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, and so my Mimi comes back in the room and she goes, she says his name. I won't say his name because like, he would be so humiliated. Uh-huh. Um, are you wearing your pajamas? And he says, yes, Mimi. And she says, are you wearing under underwear? And he says, yes Mimi and so my aunt and her boyfriend are like sitting on the table or sitting on the couch and my cousin is just leaning against the table like this you know like, uh-huh. <laughs> and all of a sudden he jumps out in front of the tv lifts up his shirt he's totally naked underneath and he goes Ta-da! <laughs> he runs away <laughs> it is the best story ever <laughs> yes and so that, my poor cousin, that is a story. I mean, he, 
is five years older than me. That is the story that has followed him his entire life. There were jokes made about it at his wedding. So <laughs> I, my story is not endearing or rather it is funny when it's told in the right story in the right setting my family does not pick the right setting in which to tell these stories mm -hmm. so like mine is that i for what it's worth i was a very obedient child i don't know what happened <laughs> but um my mom was in the kitchen doing something and i was just riled up and throwing a hissy fit and could not calm down and she just lost it with me and she pointed to like we had a little like holiday themed rug on the floor there's one in front of the fridge and one in front of the um dishwasher sure yeah and she said if you're gonna throw a fit just throw it on that mat so i sat on that mat and threw my fit <laughs> and That's so amazing. um they regularly pull up my fit throwing mat which would be funny if it's like around Christmas dinner and we're all laughing and like, maybe yes. I have a little bit to drink. Yes. Um, but like the last time it was pulled up was while I was helping make arrangements for my uncle's funeral. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. That'll kill the vibe for sure. Yeah. Well, my sister's story is Christmas adjacent and she does listen to this podcast. So Anna, you are welcome. Yes. She was in a Christmas pageant at the church and she was a donkey and they were singing a song about the donkeys at the birth of Jesus. And they had donkey ears to match their donkey song. Uh -huh. And my sisters fell off in the middle of the performance and into the microphone, my little sister screams, oh shit, my ears. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Oh man. It's my sister's story. So. <laughs> Well, speaking of sisters and stories, we should get into this awful case. Yeah, um, I was trying not to. I, I know. Just tell funny stories instead. I know. By the way, this is lifetime sentence, and I'm Paul, and also regretful that we picked this case. And I'm Erin, and also regretful that we picked this case, but we did. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Um, yeah. Okay. This week I watched A Killer Among Us. It stars Tess Atkins. She plays Alex. She was in My Sweet Audrina. Oh, really? Okay. Girl Fight. Remember we covered that? Like, we that did was cover Girl Fight, one of our very early ones, because mm -hmm. I watched that one. Yep. The Flash. Okay. And Continuum. Okay. Tom Cavanaugh. He plays Nick slash dad. He was in Ed. Do you remember the show, Ed? Yes. He was the main character. Okay. Um, Tom and Grant. He was in Scrubs. He played Zach Graff's brother in Scrubs. Oh, okay. Um, and the Flash show. And then finally, we have Bor Boris Kodjo. Kodjo, I'm so sorry. Um, you are so attractive and I just butchered you. <laughs> Um, he plays detective slash detective. Um, he is from the Resident Evil movies, Surrogates, Addicted, Station 19, and Grey's Anatomy. Okay, so I've not seen the, oh no, not Station 19. I was about to tell you on HBO, there's a new show called Station 11 mm -hmm. um, that I've not seen, but the book I've read, it, it's incredible. So, Oh, speaking of HBO, and you suggested this to me 
and I watched it yesterday while I was decompressing from my You're deeply, welcome. Beanie Madness. Beanie Mania. Beanie Mania. Yes. The only thing I was sad about is it didn't show that weird couple that split up all their beanie babies on the floor of the court. Right. I was hoping they would be there. I remember that like vividly. Anyways, um, we jump right into this movie with a lady getting out of her car and a man in a black hoodie is following her. He comes up behind her and shoots her in broad daylight. In the oh, head. good. Great. Love it. I'm yeah. a fan. We then move directly to. Okay, that man is really hot. Yes, he is. He. Oh. oh, mm -hmm. Who does he play? The detective. detective, Okay. Oof. Oof. He is so attractive. Um. (laughs) Um. We. He's like if you combine Tyson Beckford and Shamar Moore. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) Continue. What? Yeah. Oh, he does. He he did remind me of Shamar Moore, but now I get the Tyson Beckford too. Oh, speaking of um, hot black men, do you follow Tay Diggs yet on TikTok? No, but he came up at Christmas yesterday. You got it because Tay Diggs has a TikTok, but he doesn't know how to add sound to it. So he just sings and like makes noise to his. It's amazing. And also he is so drunk though. Yeah, he's beautiful. (laughs) He is a beautiful man. So um, anyways, we cut immediately to a cop car with a siren blaring inside is a man and his daughter and her friend the daughter is messing with the lights and sirens so don't worry they're in no hurry to get to like the scene of the crime or anything (laughs) 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 um he drops them off at school and then the friend and her boyfriend talk because they had sex for the first time the night before brown chicken brown cow Oh no, I can't believe I just said that out loud. Um, I'm so glad you did. Um, he promises to get better and the girl's like, oh, don't worry, I told my mom. And I was like, you told your mom? That's a, that's a bold move. Listen, okay, we fucked last night, you left. And then I was like, mom, mom, are you awake? I have to tell you what just happened. Uh, true purity culture story. I know someone who felt so guilty upon losing their virginity, they ran home and confessed to their parents. Oh. Oh, that's so funny. Okay. I'll tell you who it is all day. I don't think it's funny. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> um, so, anyway, sorry. Okay, it's the first day of school, and they were supposed to do their summer reading of Les Miserables. Um, one of them Wait, so it. she really did tell her mom? Like, that was real? Yeah. Oh, I thought they were- And her mom was, like, like, super cool about it. Like, I thought I interrupted you, and then, oh, hey, I recognize that wine glass. I have the same one. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that I had cut you off, and she was going to be like, I told my mom that you're coming over tomorrow night. Nope. But no, no. Okay, great. She told her mom. Um. So one of them did their summer reading and one of them didn't. And all of a sudden the police dad is back. His daughter, whose name we learned is Marissa, thinks he's come to pull her out of school because she got a tattoo. And I was like, oh, honey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, he's here for her friend, Alex. He's asked her to come with him. So um, I just want to like point out, you used to teach school. Um, I used to attend school. Uh Uh-huh. 
if the police showed up and wanted to pull someone out of class, that would not go down that way. They would not send the officer to be like, hey, come no, with me. The officer better be accompanied by several adults who have vetted this situation. Um, but I told you about the time that a police officer pulled me out of teaching to interview me, right? Yeah. And my Wait, principal- was this a weed day? No. This was the day that one of my students had been arrested and tried to use me. So they, the police thought he tried to use me as an alibi, but he actually tried to use the band director. Mm. And I was actually able to corroborate that they were on a band trip that day. But um, the, I was in my formal observation and my, I told my principal, I was like, hey, I probably have to go deal with this. Can you watch them and we can reschedule? Mm-hmm. And um, he was like, he was like, no, he goes, um, this is an observation. And I went, buddy, this is an investigation. I've got a kid who's been arrested. Yeah, I, I would have been like, buddy, um, since you're my boss and this is your observation, why don't you go tell the police that I can't talk to them right now? Right. See how that works out. Right? Um, this man was afraid of children. He had been a kindergarten principal, I mean, a kindergarten teacher. And then his first job was at a urban high school. He'd come from a like a rich white district outside of sure. Houston where mm-hmm. he taught only kindergarten and then came to a high school as an assistant principal. So like he was so out of his element, he didn't know what to do anyway. Um, and so he was just like panicked that he had to sit in a room with these kids. Anyway, I came back from this and I was like, also, I didn't let the kids know what was going on. I was like, hey, y'all work. I like broke them up into small groups and I was like, I need to run in my office and take care of something you know, and so they, they had no idea. Um, and so when I came back, I was like, do we need to reschedule or like, just let me know what's up, you know? And he said, I've seen all I need to. That motherfucker gave me a 2.5 out of, no, a 1.8 out of a four. And then when I contested it, they tried to bump it to a 2.4. And I was like, no, I'm taking this above you. And I had to request an observation from outside of our school where I got a 4.0. Oh my God. Goodness. Anyways, so now my yeah. eyes twitching and I need therapy again. <laughs> um, they take Alex out of school and drive away with her. The officer finally tells her there's been an accident at the pet store and her mom has been hurt. They pull up onto the scene and Alex rolls down the window and opens the door from the outside and runs out of the car. She runs over to where a um sheet is covering her mother's body because she's dead. Um okay, so the police suck. Yes. Um, The detective picks her up and hauls her back behind the line while a reporter screams, you're Alex, right? You're 17. That's your mom. What happened to her? Where's your father? And I was like, this reporter needs to slow his roll. Lifetime Um, way to fill in as much backstory as you could in a short amount of time. Yeah. So the detective is like, I'm going to get you fired. Leave her alone. And so they take Alex away back to her house. Um, Wait, was it the hot detective? Yeah. Can you imagine that hot guy being mad at you? I mean, not like real mad, but like a little mad. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I'm now now just like salivating over the actor because- I thought about it extensively. For a very long time. (laughs) Um, So the kids are all inside and the younger ones are asking Alex what happened. She just repeats that her mom is hurt. But then a nosy neighbor comes over and is like, did you hear what happened? They shut down the street. It's all over the news. 
So of course, one of the kids runs to the TV and to watch the news where they're reporting the murder. No. So the two younger kids are screaming and Alex runs back outside. Um, her father shows up at the morgue and is mobbed by reporters as he's escorted inside. He identifies his wife and then cries. Um, back at the station, the police explain that they know witnesses will come forward, but they first have to rule out those close to him, her, i.e. him. Right. He says he was at a work party. And I was like, in the morning? Well, you know. But he says he just wants to get home to see his children. So they explain the gist of what happened. He gets home and his younger kids hug him. He asks after Alex, who is still not there. She's walking around town and stops the place where her mother was shot and cries. There's already a memorial on a bench outside where people are leaving flowers and notes. A hand grabs her arm. It's her dad. The day of the funeral, Alex is in the limo saying that she's afraid the man is out there watching them and her dad promises he'll never let anyone hurt them. At the funeral reception, the detective is watching everything as Alex and her family do the receiving line. Her dad tells her to take a break and she gets confronted by some man who hugs her and tells her that she looks more and more like her mom every year. And then he apologizes for saying that. He says he's there for her if she ever needs to talk. Alex's dad sees them talking and comes over. He tells them they have like a very tense exchange while they both smile like fucking lunatics. Oh, great. Okay. Mm -hmm. He says he has a right to pay his respects and the dad, while continuing to smile, tells him to stay away from his family. And I was like, huh. Okay, then. Alex goes outside and is approached by the detective. He promises to find the killer and gives her his card. He says he wants to contact her because he wants her help to find her mom's killer. And I just wrote, yeah, I hear high school girls are really good at that. Um, did you not watch Veronica Mars? <laughs> Alex just kind of stares at him and he walks away. Back at the station, the detective and his partner are working on a case. The partner is just ready to go out and arrest someone. And the detective is like, uh, you need to settle down for like five full seconds, please. But his partner is like, um, we have three murders a year here. This isn't the big city. We can't have an unsolved murder. And I was like, is this like the Hallmark version of a Lifetime movie? Yes. He like moves to the small town. The police officers, I throw my microphone. I mean, you're so incredulous at this line that you're just fucking done. Um, he came from Alumaria or wherever you just said. Alumaria. Yeah, <laughs> wherever. On Patreon. Um, the captain comes in to tell them they'll be announcing a reward on the news and tells them to hurry up and solve this case. Alex has a track meet, but she totally freezes when they fire the gun to start, but she regains her composure and manages to win the race. Afterwards, she meets up with her dad, her friend, Marissa, and her boyfriend. Dad brings home Alex and her siblings, and surprise, he bought Alex's little brother a dirt bike. Okay. Alex is like, he's not supposed to have that. Mom said no. And the dad is like, well, I had one when I was little, and this was my decision okay so he's already moved on so that's suspicious hmm. one morning not too long after he asks what everyone has going on that day because he thinks it's time to pack up her mother their mother's things great i mean i knew he did it but he didn't have to be like so obvious right. <laughs> um back at the police station things have gotten very tense the captain is like, you need to figure out what's missing here. And Marissa's dad comes in and asks if they have any lead. The detective asks about Alex again. And he says that she's a great kid and just like her mom. 
Meanwhile, Alex and her siblings and her dad are all at the donation station getting rid of all of her mother's stuff. Great. Which is not suspicious at all. Right. Alex tries to keep one of her mother's sweaters, but her dad tells her no. And all the kids are upset and the dad's just like, well, clothes are just things you buy at the store. Uh, Oh, okay. Um, Alex goes to the police station and asks to speak to the detective. The officer at the front desk tells her that maybe her dad would like to come in and talk to them with her. And they won't let her talk to him. So she throws a huge fit about how ridiculous they are and storms out. Um, After she leaves, the detective comes out from behind a corner, having overheard everything, and the front desk officer remarks, well, that was some display, and the detective is like, yes, it was. I don't know what he's getting at, but can we please get Alex an update? (laughs) Right, yeah, Veronica Mars needs some information. Yeah, can someone tell her it was her dad and then go arrest him? Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Alex is at track practice and quits the team. Her friend is like, oh, but you're coming to bowling tonight, right? And she's like, no, I have to help the kids with their homework. And her friend is like, you sound like a mom. What a bitch. (laughs) I'm sorry, that just bubbled out of me because Alex is like handling this surprisingly well. She goes home and makes dinner and is putting away groceries. Her dad makes a brief appearance to grab a bottle of water and then go back upstairs. Someone rings the doorbell. It's the hot detective. He asks to talk to Alex's dad and he comes downstairs and the detective tells him that he's closing the case because they don't have any leads. And I was just like, what in the fuck? But we'll get to it. Um, He says it's probably a robbery gone bad and they don't have any suspects. He says he's really frustrated, but they just don't have anything else to go on. And then he leaves. Um, Alex runs after him and confronts him, but he just like, he's like, I'm sorry. And he leaves. So Alex and her siblings are at the ice cream store and her brother sees the reward sign in the window for information on his mom's murder. He tears it down and throws it away and Alex admonishes him. And here comes her boyfriend wanting to talk. He wants to know why she didn't come to the bowling party. Are you fucking kidding me? No. And she says she got overwhelmed by the detective saying that he was closing the case. Her, her phone starts ringing and she's like, I have to get this. Bye. And she walks away. She goes and meets the detective at, the, at a diner. He says he doesn't believe the murder was a robbery because her mother had money in her wallet um, and that he needs her help. She says she's willing to help and he tells her he cannot tell anyone that she's helping because she's still technically a minor. He tells oh, yeah. her he because thinks- detectives are known to um, have sidekicks who are 17 year old yes. children of the victims. Yeah. Yes. He tells her he thinks her mom was killed by someone she knew. When she asks if he has any idea who it was, he just says yes, but he doesn't say who. Alex tells her dad the next day that she has to skip class to study for finals, so he'll need to take the kids to school for her. And I was like, what a dick. You're the dad. Right. You're not taking the kids to school for your daughter. Right. You're the dad. Um, As soon as he leaves, she starts going through the house, um, and then she goes to meet the detective. She tells him that she couldn't find any threatening letters or anything. The detective is like, well, what if it was your dad? Alex does not take kindly to this, but the detective is like, well, he's having an affair because, I mean, of course he is. Right. He Um, moved everyone's shit out. Like, yeah. Alex swears he's innocent. So the detective is like, fine, then help me prove it. And so he asked her to spy on him. 
when her dad comes home he, later, he finds Alex filling out college applications. Um, and then the family at dinner is acting all suspicious because dad at, bought Alex a car. Surprise. Okay. Alex asks where all the money is coming from for all this new stuff that they're getting. And he's like, uh, duh, savings. No, it's an insurance payout. Yeah. Great. Um, it's a new Toyota, bow and all. Dad tells her how proud he is of her for taking care of the family, which I just want to point out again, is not her job. Right. Um, we will circle back to this a million times before this is over. Um, Alex asks her dad if he knows anyone that would want to hurt her mom. And he tells her that her mom was killed by some horrible stranger and they just need to put it all behind them. Um, Alex asks if she can go visit her boyfriend. Um, she meets him and gives him a leather-bound copy of Les Miserables. Um, and then she, like, while her dad's not home, she keeps going through his stuff looking for anything to incriminate slash clear him. And she finds a receipt for a Ford Mustang that is registered in the name of the woman he's having an affair with and takes it to the detective. Great. And now it's Christmas. After the festivities, Alex is sleeping and she hears her dad sneak out of the house. He drives to the bar his girlfriend works at. Alex follows him and she sees them making out outside before climbing into her vintage Mustang and driving off. And I, for one, be pissed that my dad bought me a Toyota instead of a vintage That's Mustang. That's what I was about to say. Jesus. Alex follows them down a dark alley where they have sex. And I was like, doesn't your girlfriend have a house? No, no. There's a limited amount of times that car sex is acceptable. Right. Over 21, like you're pushing it. Well, if you are over 20, it's like a one-time like thrill thing. It's not a normal thing. Right. Um, Alex speeds away who calls to call the detective and he answers the phone. He's like, hello, it's three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> he tells her to go home and go to sleep and then he'll call her. So Alex goes home and goes to bed just as her dad gets home. Of course, she gets busted because she left the lights on and the car and it's the middle of the winter and the engine is warm so sneaking out 101 Alex come on right he asks her where she was and she says she was out with her boyfriend he tells her he remembers being 17 and that it's okay he takes she's her like maybe I was having sex in an alley behind a bar maybe maybe it was at the bar called where your fucking girlfriend works <laughs> <laughs> um so Alex goes to meet the detective at a diner with a bunch of paperwork for him to copy and return to her. A couple of cops come into the diner and see the two of them having a heated exchange, and I'm sure that'll get jaws wagging at the station. Great. Love it. Sure enough, his partner is like, hey, heard you out with a teenage girl. Want to talk about that? And the detective is like, nope. <laughs> Great. When they meet again, the detective gives uh, Alex everything back, and she's like, well, what if it was this person? And what if it was this person? And he's like, um, it's not that person. We've cleared all these people. I can't meet you at the diner anymore. And she's like, you know what? I don't know why you're such a dick all the time. Um, so that's great. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, that's such a 17 year old response. That's, yeah. that's what I would expect from a 17 year old who's been asked to help investigate her own mom's murder. Like yeah. Alex goes to the grocery store and runs into her friend, Marissa and her boyfriend slash ex-boyfriend. They're hanging out together, getting ready for a senior class ski trip. Oh, they all great. start talking and they're like, oh, we tried to call you. We were worried about you. So Alex is like, oh, when did y'all start hooking up? Okay. So Alex is by far one of my favorite characters who's ever been in any of these movies. Mm -hmm. 
Marissa admits that they're together now, but it's all Alex's fault because they spend so much time being hurt by her because her mom got murdered. Right. It was really inconvenient for me. (laughs) Alex just says she doesn't care anymore and she leaves the store. She goes home and yells at her brother to do his homework. And her dad's like, don't worry about it. We're relaxing and chilling. And Alex gets pissed. She tells her dad that she's sick of being the bad guy. And her dad's like, well, congratulations. You sound just like your mom. Oh, and that's when, because I can't keep my mouth shut. I mean, like, what are you going to fucking kill me next to? Like, I have what no she chill. she does say is, is that why you had an affair? Ooh, okay. And her dad I'll is like, that. well, who told you that? And she's like, uh, it's a small town, dad. People talk. You know, she's like, you don't have to lie to me. And she asks if he ever stopped loving her mom. And she says, no, he says, no, um, it was just a mistake. And then he says that he's not still seeing the girl, Ruthie. It was over last year. Of course, Alex knows that he's lying, but she's just like, okay. And she drives her ass to the bar to confront Ruthie and ask her if she killed her mom. Okay. Alex gives no fucks. <laughs> um, I would like a scotch and water. Hold the scotch. And did you kill my mom? Well, basically she walks into the bar and the, the bartender is like, uh, you can't be in here. <laughs> and she's like, did you kill my mom? <laughs> I love uh, it. So Ruthie says, no, she was just as shocked as anyone else when her mom was murdered. Um, she apologized for what happened to her mom. And Alex is like, do you think my dad did it? And Ruthie is like, well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine thinking that the person you're hooking up with killed somebody and you're like stuck with it what the hell when she gets home her dad is sitting in the living room waiting for her asking where she was alex says it's none of his his business and he asks what's going on with her he says quote your grades are plummeting there are no groceries in this house is this how you take care of your family and once again it is not her job to take care of your family I would have burned that motherfucker down. So they get into a fight and he backhands her. Oh, hell no. He follows her up the stairs and apologizes and hugs her. She goes to the detective and is like, my dad hit me and maybe he knows that I'm onto him and all this stuff. And a random car pulls up across the way from them and starts taking photos of them. And I was like, the fuck? Alex says she talked to Ruthie and he tells her that she's going to get herself killed. The detective is like, uh, can you stop going rogue, please? But you also asked a 17-year-old to do your murder investigation. So I really right. Like um he peels out of the parking lot and the other car follows them. And I'm so confused because the detective obviously saw the other car. He just doesn't say anything to her. He tells her they need the murder weapon and then kicks her out of the car. So Alex goes home and starts going through boxes and she finds a box of letters addressed to her mom from a guy named Frank. Okay. And then she finds her birth certificate in the same box. Oh. Because her dad is not her dad. Frank is her dad. Okay. Frank is the man from the funeral that told her if she ever needed She looks more like her mom every day. Mm -hmm. Okay. She hears her dad pull into the driveway, so she packs everything away. He catches her in the basement. She's like, oh, I just needed these baby photos for a school project, and I'm going back to school now. Um, He's like, oh, she's like, are you coming upstairs? And he's like, no, I just remembered a couple of things I need to get from the basement. and uh, Be careful. Bye. So Alex leaves and goes to confront the other man um, to ask if the birth certificate is true and if he's really her father. 
He invites her inside to make tea because yes, he is her father. He tells her that her mom always thought it was better if Alex thought Nick was her father. Alex's mom didn't leave him until she was two. And I was like, I don't know how you managed to get away with teaching your daughter that a different man was her father. Yeah. At two? Right. That's that's a lot. Um, anyways, yeah. he tells her not to be mad at her mom and that her mom always did what she thought was best for her. Alex goes to school. And from what I understand, this is the first time she's gone to school since the shooting. Because it's the yeah, first time we've seen her at school since the shooting. Um, right. Her teacher's like, I don't think you're going to get into college anymore because of your grades. And Alex is like, well, someone has to take care of my family. So I don't really care. And her teacher's like, I'm really concerned about you. And Alex is like, why don't you just leave me alone? So she goes back and meets the detective again. He tells her they won't be able to meet as much because they fast-tracked the case because a witness came forward saying that Nick also tried to hire him to commit a similar murder before the mom was murdered. Alex asked how much he was going to pay, and this bastard was only giving him $5,000. What? And I'm really shocked he hasn't gotten caught yet because you really get what you pay for, especially with murder. Right. Alex goes somewhere and is just digging around. She finds a pile of animal food on the floor and rips open the bag. And out falls a gun. Uh, I always hide my gun in my dog food. So she runs upstairs and calls the detective. Um, He's like, um, he's like, okay, well, put the gun back where you found it and meet me tomorrow at nine o'clock in the morning. And he tells her, don't be late. And Alex says, I'm never late. So I'm sure that will come back. And it does. She gets back inside just as everyone comes home and dad asks her why she's sweating. And she's like, oh, I just went for a run. And I was like, that would be much better if you were wearing running clothes, Alex. Right. <laughs> her sister wakes her up the next morning because it's 8.30 in the morning already. Alex changes and gets ready to run out the door. Her dad is like, breakfast, but she's like, I have to go. And she takes off. She meets the detective and he shows her a bunch of guns and she picks out the one that matches the gun she found. And it's the same kind of gun that was used to kill her mother. So he tells her to go get the gun and bring it to him. And I was like, what happened to this little thing we like to call a search warrant? We're just going to put our fucking fingers all over this gun. (laughs) He's like, have you ever seen the opening credits of Matlock? Pick that fucker up with a pen and then just carry it like that all the way here. He told her to wrap it in a cloth. Oh, good. So at least he did deal with that. Can you? Why don't you not send the teenager to go get the murder weapon? Carry it in your hair for me, please. We need it as evidence-free as possible. Um, Also, if you see any stains, can you spit on it and shine it? So off she goes to get the gun. (laughs) The same car is taking pictures of her again. The detective sees them again. She goes home and the music is really tense. So I assume that shit's about to get real. She goes into the garage and gets the gun. Um, As she comes upstairs, her dad is getting ready to leave and her sister runs back upstairs to get something she forgot. Um, Meanwhile, back at the station, the detective is waiting for her and starts freaking out. He grabs his gun to go after her, but he's stopped by the captain that says they need to talk. Nick confronts Alex about the gun and tells her to hand it over. Over at the police station, detective is finally getting an ass chewing for letting a minor go back into a home with a murder suspect to collect a murder weapon, which is like definitely the police's job. (laughs) Yeah, uh uh-huh. The detective is like, she was supposed to be here at 10 and she's not here and she's never late. So I'm going over there. So come back me up. Okay, I'm leaving. Bye. Um, 
dad sends the kids back out to the car so he can talk to Alex. He tells her to give her the, give him the gun and they'll just pretend this never happened. And I was like, the murder of her mom? Right. Okay. Um, Alex says no. And he tells her that she'll do as she's told because he's her father. And she's like, no, you're not. <laughs> yes. So he goes on and on about how he fed her and raised her and loved her. And now she needs to give him the gun. And she says, or what, you'll shoot me? And he's like, well, why don't you just not talk about things you don't understand for once in your life? He tells her that her mom found out about the affair and wanted a divorce. And so Alex asks the questions we always want to know in these movies, which is why not just get a fucking divorce? Thank God someone finally said it. And he says that he couldn't give her a divorce because he couldn't break up the family. And her mom was trying to ruin the family. And now Alex is trying to ruin the family. She runs and he chases her. They scuffle and she falls into some furniture. He climbs on top of her and starts strangling her. And didn't he not say 30 seconds ago that he would never hurt her? Also that he didn't want to break up a family. Uh Thankfully, hot detective steps into that house in that moment and finally drop kicks Nick right in the face. Um, He asks Alex, are you okay? And then he starts dragging Nick out of the house. The smaller kids scream for their dad. Alex looks back at Nick, who just gives her this sick smile from the back of a cop car. And we cut to Alex being interviewed in a courtroom at an internal affairs hearing for detectives, dumb, dumb stupidity. The guy in charge tells her that the detective violated her rights by putting her in a bad situation. And she says that if he hadn't, they wouldn't know who murdered her mother. She gets up and asks if they're done. And she says the only question she has left is how do you thank someone who changed your life? Because she'll never be able to say thank you enough for what the detective did for her. Oh. We find out through Alex's voiceover that the detective was found guilty. And when she asked him about it later, he said he wouldn't have done anything differently. Um, Nick was found guilty of solicitation to commit murder and sentenced to 10 years. That sounds accurate. Okay. Her siblings still believe in his innocence. Quote, in prison, he was diagnosed as a sociopath. Alex changes her last name to her real biological father's and graduates college. We see them taking photos together. The person who actually pulled the trigger in this murder has never been found. The end. Okay. I can see why you asked me if this is a real murder. Uh-huh. like a real case yeah um that is not this book that has the same title okay but has like three similarities hmm. <laughs> i was so confused yeah i can see why you're so confused now because holy man that was a ride okay so the bulk of my research And by the bulk, I mean, literally, basically all of it, except for a very small portion, came from this book with the same title. So I assumed it was the book, like the movie, called A Killer Among Us, A True Story of a Family's Triumph Over Tragedy by Charles Bosworth Jr. Okay. And then I also, Aaron, this is how deep I went, because this case was hard to like track, found the Supreme Court filing from one of the people who was charged who who contested this all the way up to the supreme court and read the court documents so that's where we were with this wow this was like early days of lifetime sentence like run bambi run when i was 
deep in that book. That's a great movie. All right. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I was like, this is so bizarre. I don't know how this could be a real story because what detective is sending a freaking 17 year old to go pick up the gun and her mom's murder? Um, Tyson Moore. Tyson Moore. <laughs> All right. So. On March 6, 1992, Melanie Enkelman sat in her sister's driveway, stealing herself again. Oh, I was in a very writer mood. So y'all are just going to have to bear with me. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> sat in her sister's driveway, stealing herself against the impending rain and the sense of impending doom in the pit of her stomach. She really just wanted to find her little sister, Elizabeth DeCaro. And that's all that really counted to her right then. Everything about Elizabeth's life had been growing stranger and stranger for months. Melanie and their older sister, Mary, um, had tried to figure out with what the increasingly peculiar events meant for their younger sister, Elizabeth. Um, I will say this is a very Catholic family, so they all have like biblical names with the exception of the oldest son. I don't remember if I wrote his name because he's a junior, but they're like Mary and Margaret and Melanie and Elizabeth. And I never could figure out why she doesn't get an M name like all the other daughters. So according to the Google machine, uh-huh. this is what this case is based on. That's what I thought. So I'll, I'll point out where the similarities are because there are some noticeable ones. Um, let's see. But now, um, but now Melanie couldn't shake the ominous feeling that settled in on, that settled on her now that Elizabeth had missed their scheduled five o'clock drinks that day. That wasn't like Elizabeth, even these days. Between Margarita's at the restaurant where she'd gone, Melanie made several calls to Elizabeth's home and there'd been no answer. This uncharacteristic absence, not on Melanie until she knew she had to take action. You know what that reminds me of? What? No body, no crime. Yeah. Where she like is supposed to meet for drinks and doesn't show up. Yep. And that's how her friends know something's wrong. So at eight o'clock that night, Melanie sat in Elizabeth's driveway with a mutual friend of theirs. She forced herself out of the car and sprinted through the rain to the garage. Elizabeth's parking spot was empty, which should have indicated Elizabeth was gone. But Melanie noticed something odd. The side door going into the garage was open. And so was the door from the garage into the house. Melanie could see into the laundry room where the light was on Hmm. asking her friend to enter the house with her which the book even notes that like the friend was so freaked out that he went to the side of the house and like dug around in the trash can where a discarded baseball bat was and he took the baseball bat with him which like I good friend Um, Melanie pressed her way into Elizabeth's house she hurried through the garage and laundry room and went into the kitchen The months of uneasiness and conspiracies caught up with her as she pushed her way through the kitchen. Turning past the counter, she saw a terrible sight. There, sprawled on the floor in front of the sink, was Elizabeth, face down and motionless. Elizabeth DeCaro had two gunshot wounds in the back of her neck and bruises on her body. When she was shot, the gun was in contact with her body. And, I, and she was either kneeling or lying down. 
The bullets recovered from her body were 22 caliber and police found no signs of forced entry. So a little bit, because this case was so sad, I actually focused a lot on Elizabeth and her life. And then I give you literally just the chronology of what happened in the months leading up to her murder that made everyone so uneasy. No, that's great. Um, I, as you were telling the story, I was reminded, like I was, I think it was true crime obsessed last week. Um, did the Chris Watts case and I'm constantly reminded that in these situations like had um Shanann Watts's like best friend who was just like she's been gone for an hour and a half like something's wrong uh-huh not called the cops and like these people that are like uh she didn't show up for margarita something's wrong like yeah these guys yeah. would have gotten away with it um so Elizabeth was the youngest of six children and then eventually there was a seventh. So there were six who were born in the span of 10 years. And then when she was in high school, her mom found out she was pregnant again. Okay. Yeah. That is a lot of babies. <laughs> that is. So um, born in May, 1963, Elizabeth was regarded as special by her entire family. As a baby, she rarely cried. And as a toddler, she rarely fussed. She rarely had to be disciplined while she was growing up. Um, she was, con um, she was described as sensitive, kind, giving, thoughtful, and infectiously cheerful. Um, she never had an angry word for anyone. The older she got, the more pronounced that particular characteristic became, like her sharing joy and being kind to everyone. Mm -hmm. In school, she was known to befriend the people who were often left out of social circumstances, um, and she would defend people who were ridiculed. She was sweet and everyone, like no one had an untimed word to say about her. Um, Jimmy, her oldest brother, the book said recognized the uniqueness of his little sister. And I thought that was a funny like sentence. That is a funny sentence. Um, but he was 10 years older than Elizabeth and he kind of declared himself her protector and nobody was ever allowed to give her a hard time. Jimmy and Randy. So the, of the seven children total, there were only two boys. Okay. And so Jimmy and Randy, who were kind of merciless to the other siblings, they teased and tortured the other sisters, um, were very kind and protective of both, um, or very kind and protective of Elizabeth, um, even though they were kind of assholes to Mary and Melanie because <laughs> Mary and Melanie were kind of the, the ones who could take it. They had the personalities who would push back. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, not that that excuses being an asshole, but like it's sibling dynamics at its finest. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, so Margie said she always thought of Elizabeth as the little princess. Um, and it was not a nickname that came from envy or sarcasm, but from genuine love and recognition of Elizabeth's just very gentle and sweet nature. Margie thought she saw much of herself in her little sister's personality. And so that made her feel very close to Elizabeth, um, even though they were seven years apart. And so typically sisters that far apart wouldn't be that close, especially when there are many in between. Uh -huh. Um, and Elizabeth was a good student, like all of the children of this family. Van Isaacum was their last name, but I know okay. I'm going to stumble over it. So um, I avoid putting their last name as much as possible. <laughs> so um, 
Liz, as she was called by most of her friends, excelled in writing poetry and giving speeches. Um, she was beautiful and athletic. She was blonde. She was a cheerleader. Um, she was a cheerleader in junior high, but she didn't follow that path in high school. Um, instead, she played on their their school's volleyball team, which was kind of renowned in the area and um, often took the state championship. Yeah. Okay. She was a Girl Scout. Um, her mom was their troop leader and um, she loved to go on the campouts and all of the other activities that many of them they incorporated into their regular life. So like they found they loved camping so much through Girl Scouts that they started camping as a family. I loved Girl Scout camp. It was so fun. Um, so in the eighth grade, Elizabeth even, um, so they went to the, this um, private Catholic school and this school had I don't know if it's a beauty pageant or what, because part of it is raising money. Like you get this title for raising money for like their missions that the school donated to. Mm -hmm. But Elizabeth got the title of Penny Queen, which you had to be nominated for. But like I said, there's also this fundraising component. Um, but also, like, I think the last thing I would want if I'm competing for a title is the Penny Queen, because that just sounds like you're the Dollar Tree Little Miss. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, so years later, after her death, one classmate wrote this really touching letter to her parents, whose names were Georgiana and Jim, mm -hmm. about how kind she'd been to him. He said yeah. that um, she'd befriended him when he was bookish and everybody mocked him and called him the professor, which I'm like, that's such a Catholic private school nickname. Like, um, and that he was offended by it, but she always just, the book said, quote, Elizabeth had always offered him the wonder of her concern and the dignity of addressing him as Greg, you know, like his name, it's the small yeah. things really like, come on. Okay. Uh, but um, as far back as elementary school, Elizabeth had caught the attention of the, um, of boys at school. So one of the boys who first showed an interest in Elizabeth when, he, um, when he was in the fifth grade and she was in the fourth was named Richard DeCaro went by Rick. Okay. By 1976, when Elizabeth was a seventh grader, um, and Rick was an eighth grader, he began spending a lot of time around Elizabeth's house. Though he and Elizabeth insisted at the time they were just friends, Elizabeth's parents were leery of Rick and his reputation as one of the, quote, loud and, ratty bad, loud and rowdy bad boys at St. Kevin's School. Oh. He was described. I'm not as concerned as her parents are. Right. He was described in the book as, quote, and I guess this was by others, quote, so antisocial, such a habitual troublemaker, that he had even been expelled from the sixth grade. That was not the kind of suitor at any age that they had in mind for their daughter. Okay. But still Rick became a fixture in the lives of Elizabeth's family. He cruised around with Elizabeth's brother and like Rick owned a car and he cruised around with Elizabeth's brother, sneaking beers whenever they could get them. Um, and he spent most of the afternoons on their couch watching TV. Um, 
And her parents said they felt bad for him. Nobody kept it a secret that they didn't like him. And when he finally dropped out of high school after his sophomore year, nobody was surprised. And that really broke um, Georgiana's heart because she was like, you know, nobody should have to live up to the expectations of society when this is the expectation they're given, you know? Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Um, So what did surprise them was when they learned Elizabeth, who was 15 at the time, had started to date Rick. While they didn't necessarily make their um, protests heard, they did tell Rick that he was going to have to stop speeding and driving recklessly, um, or they wouldn't allow Elizabeth to ride in the car with him. I mean, that's understandable. Right. Because he had like souped up his car. He was a, he was actually a really good mechanic and he'd souped up his car enough that he could outrun local law enforcement. So he would just um, like speed everywhere. And when cops were on his tail, he'd lose them in a chase and was proud of that. Um, I'm confused about how cops work. If they know it's you, can't they just find you when you stop outrunning them no idea run out of gas right um so i think he would like maneuver onto side streets where they couldn't follow him and stuff like i think he was kind of like a skilled driver where it was like maybe i don't know listen um they hired a 17 year old to detect their mom's death so i'm not saying the cops they're very good (laughs) so that is a valuable point so they kind of hoped that putting their foot down like this would end the relationship but to their surprise he agreed to their demands and began immediately driving like the responsible young man they demanded of him and right in fact um his mom was like well somebody should have laid the law down with him sooner if that was going to make him pay attention and i'm like well did you try or i don't understand like why is that a sentence (laughs) (laughs) so in 1978 elizabeth's mom who was then 42 found out that she was unexpectedly pregnant so this divided elizabeth's parents attention and by the spring of the next year elizabeth and rick rick had broken up much to her family's relief she started dating another boy whom her family also wasn't really wild about but this was short-lived And so on a family vacation in July of 1979, Elizabeth, who was 16 at the time, told her parents that she was pregnant and the father was Rick DeCaro. And she had been pregnant when they broke up, but she hadn't known. Meanwhile, he started dating their next door neighbor and like running the roads again with his like loud muffler so that they would hear him picking the girl up all the time. So like real class act that guy yeah he sounds like a charmer um to his credit though when rick found out he immediately proposed and said he wanted to provide for her and the baby and would do whatever it took he was working a good job at an auto shop um and that he'd do anything to give them a comfortable life okay well i mean that's good right but her parents made a counter offer They said Elizabeth could stay home and study with a tutor until she delivered the baby. Then she'd return to high school as a senior and get her diploma. And after that, as a high school graduate at 18 years old, with a little bit more like stability, having a full diploma, then they could get married if they still wanted to. Which I think is a reasonable like counter offer. I knew someone whose parents did that. Um, 
with her in college. Um, she had a baby, I think her senior year of high school, they wanted her to go to college um, and get a degree. So they basically like kept the baby all the time. Um, okay. And she went away, like not, not away, but she went to college and right. like full-time student all the time um, and graduated. And then she went and like, and then they moved on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, well, not moved on, like they're still her parents, but right. you know, yeah, they had this arrangement where they watched the baby all the time. Like she had no responsibility until she graduated. Right. Which is like, that's a, I think that's a great compromise. Yeah. Cause they just wanted her to have like a, a fair shot at like right, exactly. the opportunities that she would have by having a college degree for both her and her daughter. Right. So um, they said that after that, as a high school graduate and at 18 years old, she could marry Rick in May or June of 1981. Okay. Um, and everyone was agreeable by the, to this. By okay. waiting, Elizabeth and Rick could um, start their new lives on this solid foundation and give the baby the best chance for a good life is all they yeah. were concerned about was the baby, which is like really mature of everyone involved in the situation. Absolutely. Um, and again, to his credit, Rick paid all of the expenses for the pregnancy. Um, as planned, Elizabeth stayed at home and worked with a tutor. And on February 16th, 1980, their first baby was born. And Elizabeth finished out the year with her tutor as planned. But as she prepared to re-enter high school as a senior, Incarnate Word Academy, where they went, which sounds like a cult. I'm sorry. Is that here? <laughs> right. There no like so Incarnate Word University is here, and oh, there really? is a there is an associated high school. Oh, that's school. funny. Yeah. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, Incarnate Word Academy informed them that they would not accept Elizabeth because she was an unmarried teenaged mother. She'd have to go somewhere wow. else to study. And Elizabeth's mom basically threatened to burn the whole place down. And they were like, you know what? Maybe our policy is a little outdated. You're right. Speaking of tax, the church. Right. Um, her mom was like, um, so what you're saying is you would rather kick out a 17 year old and throw her on the streets with no education. That's what you're a saying. 17 year old with a baby who, who That's a- had the baby, right? Because you right. fucking pro-lifers can't stand it if she would have had an abortion. Right. But, oh, she had the baby. And now, oh, she's an unwed mother. Get out of here with that bullshit. Ugh. Like, Georgiana, through all of this, I stand Georgiana from everything I've read. Good for her. Um, so she got Elizabeth back in, but Elizabeth chose to drop out of high school, saying that Rick told her not to go back. He didn't have a diploma and he was doing just fine. This was the eighties and he was a skilled worker. Like he was a mechanic. Mechanics make good money. Um, and so she said he was doing just fine. She could do the same. And so the two got married on January 16th, 1981. To be fair, you and I are both from a generation where we were taught that the only way to succeed was to go to college and get a degree. And now we're all saddled with just unprecedented debt that we'll never get out from under. Right. So um, when, um, that our current administration himself put into like made it impossible to forgive these loans. By the way, people who are waiting for loans to be forgiven when Biden They're was coming to. up through the ranks of politics, he was on enough committees that made it impossible to forgive loans. It's not going to happen. Even though it was one of his campaign promises. Right. And I will 
And so again, Republicans always get it twisted that like, oh, Biden's our hero. Joe Biden is not my hero. No. I thought he would do a better job than Donald Trump. I still don't like the guy. Right. And I think student loans are fucking bullshit. Yes. Um, That's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other lifetime movie where someone else dies. Right. <laughs> Um, not the president secret service i'm not threatening no, to kill the president no that's not who i mean but i mean like an overzealous loan officer i was gonna say navient <laughs> you might need to you might <laughs> to look over your shoulder great lakes Fed <laughs> loan servicing <laughs> so and then all the students burned down all of the loan offices and there were no more loans right Wait, that's a good idea Okay, let's okay. Um first we TM, elect, TM, TM, we gotta workshop that. <laughs> first we elect Big Bird president and then we just start burning shit down. Well, I mean <laughs> it's the only solution. Uh-huh. So at this point it really is. <laughs> so um the two got married on January 16th, 1981, and Rick bought a house for them that he remodeled himself. He actually made it super cute. Um and together I hope at the end he was like You're right. Super cute. <laughs> together they grew into a family of six they had four children together um by the way speaking of like remodeling did you hear about the whichever property brother and zoe de chanel had a big thing in people about their eight month remodel they've been doing on their mansion in la no get wrecked with that shit right i can't afford to buy a house and i never will be able to because of the aforementioned student loans um so um and things ran in a nearly storybook way until the months leading up to elizabeth's death which was eventually of course ruled a murder um and by a nearly storybook way we mean that rick was um rumored to be violent and aggressive and um elizabeth caught him having an affair i have a question Uh uh-huh you said it was eventually ruled a murder Right, the two guys shot, shot execution away. style in the head. <laughs> what part of that didn't scream like murder to anyone? Listen, sometimes, sometimes accidents happen, and people don't guns don't kill people, except for in this case where a floating gun just accidentally appeared. You know, as they say on Obsessed with Disappeared, it is nearly impossible to hide your own body. Right. <laughs> So, um, a couple of things that I left out in this timeline that, um, I didn't know how much I wanted to get into, but do jump out to me is that like at one point in 1991, um, Rick came home in a fire engine, red Chevy Camaro that Elizabeth blew her gasket at. And obviously, because he didn't consult her before he bought this, um, and she was working too, like he spent her, it's not like, which, if you are a one income family, then you've entered an agreement that that is still all your money, because your domestic duties, your domestic chores are your exchange for an income. I mean, again, side, like, let's go on a side adventure. Did you see the TikTok series of the woman whose husband bought a boat without telling her? No. I would give him a Viking funeral. She had like, she had like gorgeous long hair and his, like, he's like obsessed with her hair. And so she was like, you did this thing without telling me. 
So she cut off all her hair. Oh my God. And he was like, what the? He was so mad. And she was like, you bought a boat. Oh my God. Yeah. So I'll have to find it and send it to you. (laughs) So like, not that her not working would have made it any different, but like she was working too. It's not like, it's not like he had so much expendable income that buying a Camaro didn't, um, you know, put a strain on the family. Right. Um, of course it did. Well, so when she told him to get rid of it, he gave it to the woman with whom he was having an affair. And she was like, that's not what I meant. And then she killed him. Uh, yep. And, that's and the then story. she lived happily ever after. Right, exactly. Um, and yeah. so like, I didn't even go into the car really in this information until you talked about the uh, the Mustang. Because the Mustang, I was like, oh man, they they that's the one thing they heard that they wrote this whole movie around was that car. Yep. Damn car. Um, but so Elizabeth caught him in this affair. Um, and and there was there were lots of arguments that happened, but um, I'm going to now cut to basically reading the Supreme Court documents that surrounded this case. Um, the events leading up to the murder began on January 10th, 1992. So that's she was murdered March 6th. So things start January 10th, so just a couple months before. Um, okay. When James Torregrosa went to get a tire for, um, in fact, I'm just going to read verbatim, went to get a tire for his ex-girlfriend at the Old Orchard Service Station in Webster Groves. Rick DeCaro worked at that station. Okay. Torregrosa and DeCaro knew each other because they both belonged to Gold's Gym. DeCaro told Torregrosa that he had heavy payments on his van and asked Torregrosa if he knew of anyone that could, quote, take it off his hands. In the same conversation, DeCaro asked if Torregrosa knew anyone who could, quote, put a hit on somebody for him. DeCaro also stated that his wife thought he was having an affair with his secretary and that he would not wish his wish marriage on anyone. He was having an affair. So just to be clear, he was like, hey, have this van. Don't want to pay for it. Do you know anyone that can take it off my hands? Also, (laughs) while we're at it. Right. Do you know someone that will murder my wife? Right. He was like, listen, I don't want casual, this van or my don't wife. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> listen, I saw you doing curls the other day when mm-hmm. I was lunging needlessly across the floor. I mean, this is just casual gym talk. <laughs> right. Um, and I know you're here for a tire, but what if instead of you buying a tire from me, you know somebody who took my van and my wife? Instead of the grab them by the, you know what, this is actual locker room talk right murder my wife um so 10 days later decaro purchased a hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy on behalf of elizabeth and when you know he listed that school she got kicked out of as the primary beneficiary or you know himself maybe he listed himself Mm -hmm. It's possible. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Six days later, he ran her over with their van, hitting her so hard he knocked her through the garage wall into the kitchen. Okay, how this did not make it into the Lifetime movie, I will never. (laughs) Right? 
She's sustained time do be loving hitting people with cars. <laughs> she, she sustained severe bruising, and the insurance company paid him thirty thousand paid him thirty thousand dollars as a result of the incident. Like him, not her. He like, should have oh. sued his liability for running her over. So, also in January of that year, DeCaro asked Craig Wales, Craig Wells. <laughs> A manager at the old orchard service station. If he knew anyone who could steal his van. Okay, so he can't sell it. So he's like, what if and they just stole it? Wells introduced him to Daniel Basil. Basil? Basile? We're going to say Basil because it's easier. Let's call him Basil. Um, the two met and DeCaro offered him $15,000 to steal the van and kill Elizabeth. So like a two for one job. Sure. I mean, everyone's always looking for a bargain. So Daniel Basil has a walking BOGO sign, like buy Mm -hmm. one stolen van, get one dead wife free. Yeah. Buy one stolen van, get one murder free. Right. Um, on February 8th, 1992, Basil stole the van and drove it to Jackson, Missouri, where he burned it and he received $200 for the job. Basil and I clearly have very different priorities in life because mine is not going to jail. And so therefore, if I'm going to commit a crime on the behalf of someone else, it is going to be for a shitload of money. It's going to be right. for that don't talk money. Right. On February 28th, 1992, Basil asked his friend Jeffrey Niehaus for a stolen gun that was not traceable. I mean, what they should do at this point is definitely bring more people in <laughs> to the plot. You just bring everybody, everybody you know, just like spread it around town until everybody knows that it's going to happen. Right. Jesus Christ. On March 4th. This poor woman got murdered by these fucking idiots. idiots, right? On March 4th, Basil showed his half-brother, Doug Meyer, a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol. He claimed that he bought the gun from his father for a hundred dollars. So like people let's... is that now? <laughs> like nine people. Let's go on a trip and say he did buy this gun. That's half of the money he received for burning that van. Like, this is a horrible investment. Yeah, he's not very good at the math. On March 5th. Or the murder, as it turns out. Right? On March 5th, Basil asked another friend named Susan Jenkins to get him some latex gloves from the doctor's office. No, stop asking people for help. (laughs) You guys, like, I have no desire to commit a murder. But I feel like I'd be better at it. This seems like too many people. It's too many people. <laughs> so. It's like that thing when they're like, okay, I'll tell you a secret, but don't tell anyone. Right. Like, okay, I'm not going to tell anyone except my four closest friends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, um, God. Yeah, someone did not teach them how to keep no. secrets. Mm-mm. Nope. Um. So, um, let's see. Murder telephone. So, (laughs) so, um, the next day, March 5th, Frank, mm -mm, Frank's not a name. 
Daniel Basil. I mean, Frank is a name. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's not somebody they've involved in this story yet. Got it, got it. <laughs> Frank is who they bring in the car clear, with them. Frank is a name. <laughs> It's just not the name I was aiming for. It's just what came out. Okay. So Frank told his half brother um, that mm -mm. Frank (laughs) is still not a person. This is so off the rails. And I'm reading the best time. I'm reading the notes in front of me. (laughs) So on March 6th, Basil told Meyer, his half-brother, that he could not work that day because he was working on something for Rick DeCaro. Okay, well, where was Frank? (laughs) (laughs) Frank was sitting in the car like, okay. (laughs) Frank was in the van that was on fire. (laughs) I am not having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) So on March 6th, 1992, Rick DeCaro picked up two of his children from school and then went home and picked up the other two. He also put their family dog in the car and drove all four children to the Lake of the Ozarks, leaving St. Louis a little afternoon. They checked into the Holiday Inn at the lake at 2.59 p.m., and two of the children testified that they saw their mother alive before they went to school that morning. The children all also testified that the dog would always bark at strangers. Okay. So between two what o'clock. What if the stranger has a big fat steak? Okay. What if the stranger has Frank? Okay. Right. Um, so these are the real questions. <laughs> so between two and two thirty p.m., a witness noticed that the DeCaro garage door was closed. Um, Elizabeth DeCaro left for work at two twenty p.m. Typically, I would not notice any of this shit about my neighbors. Right. Um, At 3.15 p.m., a neighbor stopped by and noticed the garage door was open and that the DeCaro's blazer with personalized license plates reading Liz-Rick was in the garage, but no No. one answered the doorbell. No, you know what? He goes to jail immediately for that. Immediate, (laughs) it's an immediate go straight to jail. Do not collect $200. Vanity plate, straight to jail. Mm -hmm. That is just a law. I read that somewhere. That's a law. I agree. So vanity plates immediately to jail. Immediately no. Immediately no. <laughs> um, so at 4.15 p.m., Basil was seen driving the DeCaro's blazer, the one that said Liz Rick, um, in St. Charles. Yeah, didn't say live, laugh, love. Right. That evening around 6.30 or 7 p.m., Basil called an ex-roommate for a ride stating quote things went down i did what i had to do so they've involved another person in this how many people okay at this point you know you got to be like okay we have fucked this up um so bad so basil called his half-brother doug meyer and asked if doug had any garage space where basil could work on a car do you need garage space where i could maybe keep a body (laughs) basil big deal Basil drove the blazer to Richard Borak's home, another person, and gave him, quote, a boombox stereo stolen from the DeCaro residence as a birthday present. There have to be like a hundred people in jail for this crime. (laughs) Basil then told Borak that he, quote, did this lady. 
It's like, are, are you the worst mobster ever? Like, did like, did Al Capone like, not want you? Or happened? I did this lady. Um, what did you did to her? Right? <laughs> so just after 8 p.m., the blazer was then spotted heading south on Interstate 270. And at 10.30 p.m., Basil went to Meyer's house where they ate pizza and went out for drinks. Oh, sure. That's what everyone does after a murder, right? So then, of course, at 5 p.m. that night, Elizabeth was supposed to meet Melanie at the restaurant for margaritas. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's when they drove to their home and found her body around 8 p.m. Oh, my God. Um. So on March 7th, 1992, after reading about the DeCaro death in the paper, Basil called Craig Wells and stated, quote, it looks like I've gotten set up. So Craig Wells is the guy who introduced DeCaro and Basil. And so he called and he's like, you set me up, even though, even though it was like, I'll pay you $15,000 to take my van and my wife like i don't well part of this was a setup yeah that yeah okay yeah he definitely spelled out the wife bit like in the right yeah okay um Um, on march 9th doug meyer found decaro's dismantled blazer in the garage that he'd offered to let basil keep the car in Meyer helped Basil take parts of the blazer to the dump. So then Meyer realized that the blazer belonged to DeCaro and confronted Basil. And Basil admitted to Meyer that he'd stolen the blazer. And at trial, Meyer testified that Basil told him, quote, it was either him or her and he wasn't going back to jail. So Basil told Meyer that he was a thief, not a murderer. And on March 11th, Meyer contacted the police. Okay. So on March 12th, 1992, Basil went to Kenneth Robinson's trailer. Another person. Another person we've not introduced There's like a hundred people involved in this murder. (laughs) Right. This is why Lifetime couldn't write it because you can't introduce new characters in the third act. That's true. (laughs) So, um, Robin, he told Robinson that he was in trouble because the police that thought that he had, quote, done the van and the lady. <laughs> I, read a book. <laughs> um, so Robinson was like, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I'm just going to call this number. It looks like I'm only dialing three digits. That's because I dialed the rest of them before you got here. Sure. And then I need you to talk directly into the receiver. Yeah. It's, I'm just ordering a pizza. Um, so I'm call my, my best friend, 911. <laughs> right. So he, he called the police and the police arrested Basil a few hours later. Thank God. Ugh. So in the investigation, police found a license plate from the stolen and burned van in, um, they also found the van itself. They found the dismantled remains of DeCaro's blazer in an apartment garage in Fenton, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Also in the garage was a portable stereo unit. Um, police later found DeCa- the DeCaro stolen boombox in Ricky Borak's apartment. And 
Basil did not testify on his own behalf during the trial. Okay. Um, the testimony of four witnesses was presented. The jury found Basil guilty of first degree murder. Okay. And Basil also did not testify in the penalty phase. According to a stipulation, he had prior convictions for burglary, stealing, and assault. Okay. And so um, there was testimony that Basil had strangled his neighbor on one occasion and threatened to kill an ex-girlfriend's husband. Yikes. Um, and so, you know, he's like, um, I, I just steal things. I would never kill anyone except for my old neighbor, but yeah. he Not was an asshole time. and yeah. my ex-girlfriend's husband. But like, that was his fault for, for being married to her. Like Robert Durst. Right. So, uh, like I said, a jury found him guilty of first degree murder in 1994 and recommended the death sentence. Mm -hmm. Um, Basil was also sentenced to life in federal prison in 1996 on a charge of conspiracy to commit murder. Basically, in case the death sentence was overthrown, they would have mm -hmm. this life sentence to fall back on. Okay. Um, and then Richard DeCaro was also given a life sentence from the federal court on the charge of conspiracy, conspiracy to commit murder. Cool. So not 10 years. Right. In the hours, like literal hours prior to Basil's execution, a previously unknown possible alibi witness came forward, prompting the governor to stay the execution. Okay. There was apparently no mention of this person in any police records or court actions. And um, the governor's office issued a press release at 12:20 that morning saying that since it was a life or death matter, they were staying his execution to give sure. Basil's attorneys time to respond to the new information. Um, about five hours before the planned execution, this witness called attorneys to say that she would come forward with an alibi. Um, after listening to Julie Ann Montgomery Lewis's statement, um, the attorney, Phil Horwitz was his name, because I may say, I don't remember if I put Horwitz throughout this, but like Horwitz. Like Cher's dad from uh, Horwitz? Yep, uh-huh. Okay. So Horwitz said that he told the woman who was Basil's acquaintance from 18 years ago to put her version on paper, which was then faxed to the governor's office. Mm -hmm. The governor, um, at that point, the governor had never that governor had never delayed any of the death penalty cases um so that was his only one i think the only one while he was in office ever okay so um missouri by the way has the third highest um rate of death by lethal injection um texas runs the the pack i know you're proud to be number one over there I don't know why you're singling me out. Like, <laughs> I mean, isn't every Texan proud to be Texan? And so you have to just take, no. this is where I'm claiming to be Louisiana and not Texas. It's very convenient. Yeah. For me. <laughs> Speaking of every Texan being so proud to be Texan, where are you from, sir? Uh, Shreveport. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. let's see. So appeals were filed with the Missouri Supreme Court and the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, 
they were rejected and it's ruling the panel found that quote basil knew of the witness at the time of its trial and that they were satisfied the alibi witnesses story does not constitute quote clear and convincing evidence of actual innocence basil's attorney said the they planned to ask the u.s supreme court to intervene um but they wouldn't so minutes after being told by his attorneys of the appellate setbacks, Basil, Basil told the Associated Press by telephone that um, he was nervous and trying to say his goodbyes, quote, I believe in God and that Christ died for our sins. And as long as we ask for his forgiveness, we will be at peace, which is real fucking convenient after you've already killed someone. Yeah. I, I believe you can find religion in jail don't get me wrong in prison but i also find it really convenient to find religion after you've already done the horrible things yeah i don't know i'm not a big fan of the death penalty i'm not a fan of the death penalty at all um this whole thing just kind of like yeah so so basil said the surprise witness whom he only named as julie could provide could prove he was innocent of the murder because she drove him to a St. Charles parking lot to pick up the to Caro's Chevrolet Blazer. There was music playing through my headset that was not mine. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that was. You're anyway, haunted. you're haunted. Probably. So um, he said that this woman drove him to pick up the car that he stole. And so he couldn't have possibly been murdering Elizabeth if he were in the car with Julie. Okay. Um, and then Basil went on to say that he'd offered Julie's name to his attorneys, but they'd never pursued her. Um, but she said, quote, the reason I've not come forward before now is I discussed testifying with Daniel at the time his case went to court, but he alone decided it would appear improper due to the fact that we were both in relationships and would not allow me to say anything to anyone. Bitch, if I'm about to go, no. <laughs> right? I'm dropping your name. Sorry about it. So, um, Basil said that he didn't call on her to testify because, quote, I didn't think I'd have to go in there with some big show of evidence. I told her to go ahead and stay out of it. I told her testifying would probably be more hassle. Bro, they're seeking the death penalty. Right. That's not like, oh, it's no big deal. Um, so despite this 11th hour alibi witness, Daniel Basil died by lethal injection on August 14th, 2002. Yikes. Um, so yeah, that's the horrible murder of yeah. Elizabeth DeCaro. Um, and I, I, yeah. So I just can't believe Lifetime didn't just take this book. Yeah. Because like having a, Murder for a hire plot that involves the entire county. Nine thousand people. Yeah. <laughs> like they might as well made a Facebook event. Right. Good God. Maybe. 
Aaron and Paul RSVP interested. <laughs> oh man. Also, uh, just FYI, it's been 25 years since the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey was. Oh my gosh. I know I'm of the very thin minority that does not think it was her brother, but whoever it was, I hope they find who did it. I mean, even after all my research, I will never get over that I think it's Patsy. Who tased her, though? I don't know. Like, there are so many unanswered questions. The taser and the, the DNA that doesn't belong to anyone in the family, like, it doesn't make any sense. But also, the police fucked this up so bad. Right. <sighs> that one poor woman detective trying to hold everything together while everyone just barked over her. Just, uh, yeah, it was really bad. But um, so, police reform, tax the churches. Don't involve the entire county when you murder someone. We've been giving out valuable lessons this week. I listen. Um, and that's why you can find us, um, Mother and Uncle God, at our own. <laughs> Sign up for Patreon to learn more. But oh my God. <laughs> yeah, for the 5D, we'll do we'll do 6D. Yeah, one better. We'll yep, go to I the like sixth it. dimension. It's like um my so one of my favorite games growing up was pokemon snap on n64 uh-huh. and one of the development teams behind it was how laboratories h-a-l they are how laboratories because all of that is one letter better than ibm that's the kind of petty i ascend to no i'm on board <laughs> i get it um hey have you read any good books lately um well i finished a flicker in the dark okay that was really good that was my book of the month and oh funny story that was my book of the month and then i realized that i already had the arc in my kindle that's hilarious i have done that before so now i have a digital and a hard copy but it's a great book really really good um i liked it a lot and now i am reading the arc um We'll write a, an audio book. I'm listening to The Hunting Party by Lisa Foley, Lucy Foley, sorry. And then I'm reading um, The Golden Couple, which is the arc by Greer Hendricks and Sarah. They do um, The Wife Between Us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. So I have that. And so, yeah, that's what I've been reading. Very nice. What about you? I um, just started The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. I love that book. You and Sarah have both recommended it to me. Sarah Pekinen, that's the other one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just started that. And then I um, was really excited for my books of the month this month. Hold on, I'll tell you what they were. Um, I got... Uh, no, I don't want to see my TBR. I want to see my shelf. Uh, here we go. Uh, History of Wild Places 
And then I also got The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Have you read that? I, that is one of my favorite books. So good. So good. So I'm really excited to dig into A History of Wild Places. Yes, awesome. Yeah, I am not going to make my book goal for the year, which is crazy because I feel like all I ever talk about is reading. Um, but I went through a major lull this year while I was in the big depression. So you did. And um, I did that last year. So last I mean, year, I'm close. I'm probably going to finish like my goal was 75 and I think I'm going to get to 69 or 70. So. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, last year, I think I read 13 books total, which is for many people, 13 is a lot. And I get yeah. that. That's a book a month with want to grow on. Um, in fact, with my last therapist, I said something about how my goal is usually 50 books a year. And he was like, mm-hmm. do you know, that's like an average of a book a week. And I was like, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's I know how, how math, math works. works. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I know that 50 is a big number for lots of people, but as somebody who is a slow reader, 50 really is a push for me. And, um, I am at 48. I will round Woo-hoo. out my 50 by the end of the week. That's awesome. Good for you. Well, um, we won't see the people again until next year. We won't. Why don't you tell them where to find us in the meantime? Um, you can find us on Instagram at Lifetime Sentence, mm-hmm. on Twitter at Life Sentence Pod. Mm-hmm. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Lifetime Sentence. You can find us um, at Facebook, uh, no, at, sorry, I've already said that one, at lifetimesentence.com. Shoot uh-huh. us an email at podcast at lifetimesentence.com and join us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash lifetimesentence. Learn about all the cults. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and we will see you next year. We will see you next year. Until Oof. later. Yeah. Don't forget to eat your vegetables. Charge your phone. Bye. Bye.